Hi, and welcome to The Week in Women. I'm your host, Jill Filipovich. The Week in Women is a rundown of the week's gender and women's rights news, and it's available for subscribers early. So head to jill.substack.com and sign up for a paid subscription if you want The Week in Women before everyone else. And this week, I'm also adding a rough transcript to the news section of the show. So if you're not the podcast listening type, you can get the basic rundown of the week's gender headlines in your inbox. And again, you'll get those early if you're a paid subscriber. This week on the show, we're talking about the rise of far-right women, the global plot against abortion rights, an abortion ban in Arizona that dates back to the Civil War, and more. We'll also hear from Iranian-American journalist Negar Mortazavi, who is a columnist for The Independent and the host of the Iran podcast, and is on to talk about the incredible women-led uprising in Iran and how feminists the world over can stand in solidarity with Iranian women. But first, the headlines. This week, the Indian Supreme Court upheld the right to abortion up to 24 weeks, regardless of a woman's marital status. The country's 1971 law legalizing the procedure had only done so for married women. And the court held that marital rape is, in fact, rape, even if Indian law does not currently recognize it as such. Tunisia has long been one of the most progressive countries in the Arab world when it comes to women's rights, and they currently have a parliament that is nearly half female and a female prime minister. But advocates for democracy and women's rights say women's rights are being used as a smokescreen for a nation bending toward authoritarianism. This summer, Tunisia adopted a new constitution, which gave the president sweeping powers and removed significant authority from parliament and the prime minister. The Tunisian president has taken aim at many democratic institutions, shutting them down, and at one point suspending parliament. Now, women's rights advocates say Tunisia's female prime minister and the women who were elected to higher office are figureheads only, having no real power and simply putting a feminine face on the president's overreaches. And speaking of feminism being used as a smokescreen for authoritarianism, feminist groups in Italy are concerned about the future of women's rights in their country under newly elected neo-fascist leader Giorgia Maloney. Italian feminists have taken to the streets in protests, largely in defense of abortion rights, which they understandably see as under threat. While abortion laws have been liberalized in much of the world over the past several decades, the handful of countries where abortion has become more restrictive are almost all nations that have also seen a hard-right authoritarian turn, including Poland, Nicaragua, and the United States. Maloney and her far-right comrades are also staunchly anti-gay. These are folks who want to censor the cartoon Peppa Pig because a polar bear character on the show has two moms. And that, they say, should not be presented to children as, quote, an absolutely natural fact. It's okay, apparently, to present as absolutely natural facts pigs who walk, speak with British accents, and are friends with polar bears the truly unacceptable, unnatural thing is lesbians raising a child. Okay. In any event, Italian feminists, LGBTQ activists, and democracy defenders all understand 
that Maloney and the other far-right leaders who will take office with her are a direct threat to the rights of a majority of Italians, and that, unfortunately, Italy may no longer be in its post-fascist era. In the U.S., abortion opponents remain determined to take us back to the 19th century. In Arizona, quite literally. A judge there just allowed an abortion ban penned in 1864 to go into effect, which means that when it comes to abortion, Arizona women now have about as many rights as they did at the conclusion of the Civil War. The law allows for a two- to five-year prison term for anyone who helps a woman get an abortion. And it's been unenforceable since 1973, when the Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade. But with Roe gone, this nearly two-century-old abortion law is back in effect. And just for context, when Arizona's 1864 abortion criminalization law passed, Arizona wasn't even a state. The 15th Amendment, which extended the right to vote to American men broadly, was not yet ratified, and American women were still more than half a century away from getting the right to vote themselves. Married women couldn't own property in their own names, and when women married, they couldn't control either the money or the property they brought into the marriage. In other words, when Arizona's now-in-effect abortion criminalization law was passed, women were, under the eyes of the law, not separate legal persons. Women lacked legal personhood status. That is the era to which Arizona women are now being returned. We know that the U.S. is not alone in being a bad actor on the world stage when it comes to abortion rights. But a fascinating report just published in Rolling Stone finds that far-right activists from Russia, Spain, and other European nations, plus, of course, American Catholics and evangelicals, have joined forces behind what's called Citizen Go, an organization made up of and funded by some of the world's shadiest far-right actors. The group targets abortion and LGBTQ rights all over the world, recently taking credit for tanking abortion rights legislation in Kenya and for a law that would throw LGBTQ people in Ghana in jail for long criminal sentences. Citizen Go has spent huge sums of money manipulating social media in Kenya and launching serious attacks on Kenyan activists and politicians who support women's and LGBT rights. And while one of Citizen Go's talking points in Africa is that women's rights and the very existence of LGBT people is a Western colonial import, in reality, it's Citizen Go that is a Western colonial import coming in from the outside to undermine local human rights campaigns and even free speech. In Ghana, a proposed bill tied to Citizen Go would mandate that anyone aware of homosexual activity reported to the authorities would throw gay people in jail, and would allow for prison sentences up to 10 years for publishing anything that promotes homosexuality. This group, funded in part by Russian oligarchs and known criminals, continues to shape the future of abortion and LGBT rights in some of Africa's most stable, growing democracies, undermining not just women's rights and LGBT rights, but the civil society's democratic futures and economic potential of those nations. Chinese businessman and billionaire Richard Liu is being tried in an American court 
after a woman in Minneapolis said he raped her. Although prosecutors declined to bring charges, she's suing him in what could be a watershed moment for China's still nascent Me Too movement. While Chinese women have been speaking out about sexual violence and harassment, the Chinese Communist Party has tried to shut down their claims. And for speaking out, the woman at the heart of this case has been attacked and threatened on social media. Still, she's refusing to back down, and her case has opened up an important conversation in China about sexual assault, gender, power, and victim blaming. When you got the COVID vaccine, did you swear it affected your period? You're not crazy. A new study of some 20,000 people worldwide who were vaccinated against COVID-19 found that, yes, COVID vaccination delayed menstruation by an average of one day. Not much to add there other than, no, you aren't making it up. And while the jury is still out on whether COVID vaccination causes other changes to menstruation, it's heartening that this research is underway and women are getting answers. In Iran, protests continue as women and men alike demonstrate against the nation's theocratic regime and the morality police that activists say killed a 22-year-old woman, Masa Amini, who was in their custody for allegedly wearing her hijab incorrectly and wound up dead. Protesters are fighting a regime of violent misogyny and gender apartheid, and some of them are paying for it with their lives, as Iranian security forces launch violent attacks against the protesters, jailing hundreds and killing dozens. And yet, many Western feminists are strikingly silent on what is currently the largest women's rights protest in the world. Iranian feminists are saying, stand with us. Exiled Iranian feminist Masi Alenejad, who lives in an FBI safe house after Iranian intelligence officials plotted to kidnap her and who this summer avoided an assassination attempt at her home, writes in the Washington Post that the true feminists and women's rights activists are those in Afghanistan and Iran who are stepping forward at great cost to resist the Taliban and Islamic Republic. They are the true feminist leaders of the 21st century risking their lives by facing guns and bullets. They will go on fighting against the regimes, and we who have the privilege to live in free countries should actively amplify their voices. This is the moment for women in the West to stand with Iran's mothers, daughters, and sisters. And she continues, My wish is for all of us to be louder than the tyrants. I call on the free world to join the protesters in calling for an end to the murderous regime of the Ayatollahs, Iranian women are fighting to recover our dignity and exercise our personal freedoms so that one day all Iranians can finally choose our government in free and fair elections. We shouldn't be afraid of the religious fanatics and the jihadists. They are the ones who are frightened. It is why they seek to keep women down. Women in the streets are paying with their lives for change. But too many in the outside world are shaking hands with our murderers. I am asking all Western feminists to speak up. Join us. Make a video. Cut your hair. Burn a headscarf. Share it on social media and boost Iranian voices. Use your freedom to say her name. Her name was Masa Amini. Women the world over will be marching on October 1st in solidarity with Iranian women's rights activists.
we should join them. And now for a deeper dive into the conversation about women's rights protests in Iran, I am joined by Negar Mortazavi, an Iranian-American journalist and analyst, columnist for The Independent, and the host of the Iran podcast. Welcome, Negar. Thanks for having me. So just to get started, for readers or listeners who aren't familiar with you, can you tell us a little bit about your background, your work, and your expertise? Sure. So I'm an Iranian-American journalist. I've lived in the U.S. for the past 20 years. Half of it, unfortunately, in exile. I can't return back to my country because of my work. And I cover and focus on Iran basically from a distance, like many other journalists who are doing this in exile. I used to work for Voice of America, television. I was a television host, a few other Persian outlets. And now I am a freelance journalist, mostly doing work in English. I'm also a political analyst, and I'm host and editor of the Iran podcast. Wonderful. So I want to dig into the protests in Iran, and I'm guessing that listeners know the basics. So a 22-year-old woman died while in the custody of the morality police after they said she was wearing her hijab incorrectly. Women and men have now flooded into the streets. Some women are burning their hijabs, cutting their hair. And Iranian security forces have begun a violent crackdown. And I'm wondering if you can tell us what else is going on here? What else should folks outside of Iran understand about these protests? So the death of Masa Amini in police custody is also rooted in a lot of anger at essentially discrimination against Iranian women in the public and private lives. There are laws and regulations and enforcement of what women consider unequal and just and just violation of their dignity and basic rights. And this mandatory hijab law, which is an Islamic dress code, as some Islamic scholars are saying, a fundamentalist view of Islam for it to be mandatory even, um, is part of that. And it's one of the most visible because even if you're a simple, small town girl like Masa Amini, even if you're a homemaker, a housewife who has nothing to do with the professional or political life, you still have to observe this dress code whenever you go in public. And the dress code, the morality police is tasked with enforcing this dress code. And at times it gets very violent. People have seen images, videos, and photos and eyewitness accounts of the violence of the morality police. When they arrest women, they're a police force. So they have the authority to arrest. They throw women in these famous police vans they have. They sort of go around. It's a patrol. It's literally called the guidance patrol. So they're supposed to patrol cities and neighborhoods and Irshad people guide people on how to observe this mandatory hijab law. And when women refuse to be guided, quote unquote guided, then they resort to violence and arrests and they throw them in these vans and bring them to the station for further, quote unquote, guidance and training. And that's what happened to Masa Amini. She was taken to the station and then she ends up in a coma in a hospital and then she dies. The authorities are saying that she had a heart attack but her family is saying that she was a healthy 22-year-old with no underlying health conditions as that, and that she was subjected to violence and brutality. And because people have seen this violence either themselves or in images in the past, there is this anger and this accusation of the morality police essentially being a violent form of harassment against women in the public. So the state 
tried to immediately put out a narrative that they didn't commit any violence and that she died on her own of this underlying condition. And then they try to put pressure on her family for the funeral, making sure the funeral doesn't turn into a protest, which it did. Her community, she's from the Kurdish community in west of Iran, was very angry and protests erupted. And then it just spread to other cities and towns and then essentially around the country. So part of it was this years and years and layers of anger at the violence of the morality police. The turning point was the death of this woman. And then add to that the state's response, which was just adding insult to injury, in a sense. And that's why we're seeing this outpouring of anger. That's that's years building, but with the death of Masa Amini and the state's response has has just been exploding in a way. So there's clearly a gender component. Women are enraged by the degree that they've been treated with disrespect and violence and disregard by the regime. But there's also an economic component, yeah? Yes, there's definitely an economic component, also political grievances. So this is layers and layers of grievances, in a way, an intersectional way of different communities coming together, laborers, teachers, various rights activists, and they each have their own layers of grievances. The Iranian economy is in very bad shape. There is a lot of political and social repression in the country. Even artists, filmmakers, athletes are under pressure. So it's, it's a combination of all of these things and all of these groups that sort of culminated and Masa Amini became a symbol for this protest and this anger, but it's definitely multiple layers of grievances and various different communities of protesters that have also come together and are showing this uh, unity. Do you have a sense of what it is ultimately that Iranian feminists are demanding? And is that the same thing that this really diverse group of protesters are demanding? So these protests are very incredible because, in essence, I see it as a feminist uprising. You see a lot of women, young women, taking either leading or being very central uh, figures in these protests because it started or the spark of it was this women's rights issue and the death of a young woman over a women's a lack of rights issue. Because this morality police, yes, they deal with, with men too, but their predominant target has over the years been women and the mandatory hijab is also something that's only enforced on women. So it really is a women's rights issue, but men have also joined women. So it's women and allies shoulder to shoulder, but women are taking very central roles. One of the main slogans of the protest is actually a Kurdish slogan from her, originally from her town and area, which is a Kurdish area, Maxwell's area. The slogan says, Jan Azadi or Zan Zendegi Azadi, which translates to woman, life, freedom. And I think it's just such a progressive and feminist slogan in three very simple words. Zan, Zendegi, Azadi. It's something that people are chanting on the street inside Iran, in solidarity outside Iran. Women are cutting their hair, which is also a local, in some cultures, a show of grief when somebody dies, but also a show of defiance because it really has to do with how the state is trying to enforce the hijab, covering women's hair. And we're also seeing young women throwing their scarves in the bonfire, um, essentially saying that I'm done with this mandatory enforcement and that I'm not going back to it. I've seen young women online saying, I'm not going back to it. I threw it in the fire and I'm not wearing it again. 
um, tomorrow as this mandatory enforcement. And what's also incredible is that you have some religious Iranians joining. Some hijabi women launched a campaign on Instagram that said, the hashtag was saying, I am hijabi, but I'm against the morality police, essentially saying, don't do this in my name. There's religious scholars who are saying, this is un-Islamic. You're not supposed to use violence to force what you consider an Islamic dress code that has roots in faith, in your religion, and it's a virtue or a value from your viewpoint, but you're enforcing it with lethal violence on other women. So stop doing this in the name of religion, in the name of the religious community in Iran. And I think it's incredible. The, this unity of people over this issue is incredible. But then, as I said, you have other communities like teachers, laborers, men shoulder to shoulder with women joining with their political grievances, the economic grievances. People are very frustrated frustrated at the closing of political space. There's very little room for any prospects for political change. People are chanting very radical slogans against the entirety of the regime, the Islamic Republic. They're saying death to the senior leaders and the entire system. And a lot of them just want fundamental change that because they don't see any other avenue besides the street and this, uh, this form of fundamental change that they expect. Now, I don't know how much of that change is, is going to be possible or happen, but the slogans tend to be very diverse and also very radical at times. And is there any role here for governments outside of Iran? I mean, obviously the U.S. doesn't necessarily have the greatest track record in the world of, of interfering in, in other countries. But is there any request or demand on the part of these protesters or Iranian feminists for other countries to step in in, in some way, large or small? Well, I've seen activists call, first of all, for messages of solidarity. So interference is one thing, but showing solidarity, showing support or condemning violence against peaceful protesters, condemning violence against women. These are all things that activists are asking for ordinary citizens and they appreciate it. It doesn't matter coming from who, if the message is good, they like this form of solidarity. There's also, I've seen activists asking for naming and shaming of those who are committing violence in the name of the state. So those who are in the state responsible for this direct or indirect violence, be it violence on the street through security forces or be it the repression of free speech through limiting of the internet. There's a whole infrastructure in Iran who's responsible with limiting or shutting down the internet and putting the infrastructure down and they're very active. So I've seen calls for naming and shaming, even sanctioning or designating these people as rights violators within the judiciary, within the security forces. The morality police was just sanctioned by the U.S. government, followed by the Canadian government. This is something that I've seen activists actually welcome because one of the main demands is to completely abolish the, the morality police. So putting these kinds of designations that people think either will impact these forces or at least be symbolic against these forces are something that I've seen people ask for. As far as broad economic sanctions, because we did talk about the economy and not that sanctions play a role in any part of this, but because we're talking about the U.S., Time and again, research has shown that these economic, broad economic sanctions have not really weakened the regime. And they've, in fact, strengthened the most militaristic and unresponsive portions of the of political system. And, and on the other side, they have weakened the society. They have weakened the civil society. They have weakened the lives of ordinary Iranians, the middle class, the working class, vulnerable populations. So Coming out and putting out on more 
broad economic sanctions on the Iranian economy is not going to necessarily help these protesters. One thing that I saw the U.S. government do and a lot of internet freedom activists praise was issuing an exemption to previous sanctions that says um, messaging apps and in, basically for internet freedom, for access of ordinary citizens to software and hardware that's produced by American companies and to make it available to Iranians because you won't believe it, because of U.S. sanctions, apps, messaging apps, some, some online social media networks and some more sophisticated services that are just very available for, for people globally, and some don't even think about it, are, are banned for average Iranians, for a startup person, for an activist, for an entrepreneur, for a women's rights group. And the U.S. government, by issuing this exemption to those cyber sanctions, has essentially, got, it's getting out of the way of, of the activists trying to do their own work. So a lot of it also has to do with getting out of the way or not blocking or not causing more harm to what the activists are doing inside the country. And uh, I think it's an indigenous movement. It's very organic, it's very grassroots, and the government is trying. They've already started to accuse the protesters and the activists of being connected to foreign powers or being led on or foreign powers taking advantage or intervening. So the world has to be careful to show solidarity and support and do things that help without doing any harm or without feeding that narrative. There's also, you know, a lot of criticism at the U.S. government of how they treat legitimate grievances and protests when it happens in a country that's their adversary and when it happens in a country that's a friend. So just this morning, I saw some national security analysts say with the U.S. government, the same administration rushed to support protests if they were happening in Egypt, for example, if they were happening in another friendly country in the Middle East as authoritarian, as, as repressed. Probably not. Or Saudi Arabia. Yeah, if we do see this kind of protest at all. But that's another thing. You know, the devil standard is, is something that people see and they observe and they point out. So the, you know, consistency and also having the conscious of not doing harm, but not doing harm doesn't mean not doing anything or not saying anything. No, by all means, solidarity, support condemning, naming and shaming. These are all things that activists are asking for constantly. But then at the same time, don't throw in another economic sanction in the mix, which would just pressure the population and not really weaken the regime. It's a really important point. And, you know, for folks like me who are watching these protests from the U.S. and are finding them so incredible and inspiring and also terrifying, right, on behalf of these protesters who are risking their lives to stand up for themselves and, and for other women. What can we do to show solidarity, uh, but also to maybe to help or support? Is, is there anything that average folks can do that activists in Iran are asking for? Well, the main work of these protests, obviously, is being done by the brave, brave women and men on the street who are risking their lives. They're essentially being killed, but standing unarmed in front of bullets and demanding their rights. That's the majority of the work that's being done. But out here, what, what average protesters and activists are saying is, be our voice, echo our voice, especially when we don't have access, when we can't access the internet, when internet is limited, when we don't have access to media, to social media, share our posts, help the hashtag get trended, be our voice, say her name. That's what they're saying. Say her name, Mahsa Amini, make sure everyone knows why she was killed. She was killed in or died in police custody, killed essentially 
simply for not wearing what the state deemed or that agent deemed appropriate at that moment. And just show solidarity, show support. But I think it's important to make sure to not put out messages that don't reflect what's happening on the ground. So be an echo and show your support. But I sometimes see people in the West rearing to Islamophobic messages or anti-Muslim messages. Yes, it's an Islamic Republic, but this has to do with tyranny. This has to do with repression. This has to do with patriarchy. Yes, some of it is rooted in a fundamentalist view of the religion, but you also have hijabi women fighting this issue shoulder to shoulder. You have some religious scholars joining. So make sure you're not smearing a billion people in the world who are Muslims, that you're, you don't make this message or translate it into something that it isn't. But as far as echoing, showing solidarity, posting, reposting, all of these are very important and are something that people keep asking for and also explaining what's going on to your own communities in your own languages. A lot of Iranians don't necessarily speak all the languages of the world. So a lot of the content is in Persian, it's in Farsi and just explaining and resharing and um, keeping the voice alive is the most important thing that I'm hearing from people. And that's it for the week in women. Thank you as always for listening. Remember, if you subscribe to jill.substack.com, you get the week in women before anyone else, including now a partial transcript of the news segment of this show. And if you're enjoying the show, I am always grateful if you rate, review, and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you are listening. And a big thanks to Tamar Eisen, who assisted in research for today's show. See you all next week. Bye.